Well, it's Labor Day, and I know some people are squeezing in that last little bit of summer, but I'm so thrilled that y'all are here as we gather for worship. I'm sure that, like me, many of you have gotten used to that fall routine with school having kicked back off. For those who have kids in school or in college, our daughter Amelia just started first grade. She loves it. She loves her teacher. Our boys love their classes and their teachers. It's just a great thing. And I was reading about a little girl who was in the uh, second grade who got her first report card home. And uh, she had gotten all A's. Her father was uh, looking at the report card and there was a note at the bottom and it said, "Um, Annie is such a joy to teach. She's an excellent student, very sociable, but she has a little problem where she talks too much in class. The teacher says, I do think I have an idea that will help her not talk so much, so we'll work on that this quarter. So her dad signed the report card and wrote a note back, thank you so much for all you do, and please let me know if your idea works. I would like to try it at home with her mother. (laughs) And so we all know what it's like to be around somebody who just talks a little bit too much. Well, it takes work to bite your tongue, doesn't it? I should have probably bit my tongue right then, but I didn't. So, um, But to really think it through before we speak, because we just have it right there and we just want to let it go so people will know what's on our mind. And some of you are better at that than others. But the tongue is a dangerous part of the body. I'm sure you've noticed. The scriptures say this. say, for every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Yet, as believers in Jesus, we have to learn how to harness the tongue. So how are we going to do it? It takes training for that kind of thing. We have to discipline ourselves in the area of our speech for the sake of Christian maturity. So what are we going to do? We have to hit the gym, right? That's gym as in J-I-M. This is the third of three weeks that we're spending in the first chapter of the book of James. And as you know, James is the author of this letter. James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem Um, during the first century, and he's writing this letter particularly to Christians who have been scattered because the persecution in Jerusalem has increased. And so they're running for safety, essentially. And so he's writing to them, those who are facing significant trials and tribulations. And in the first chapter, you'll be reminded that he writes a lot about facing trials. And depending on your allegiances with regards to college football, you might relate to this first chapter a whole lot this morning of going through trials. But in verse 2, James says to count it joy when you face trials. He says because they're going to lead to maturity, maturity in Christ. So God is at work in the middle of your struggle to make you into the man or the woman that he intends for you to be. And then he also, we looked at last week, how he says when you face trials, that you're often tempted to sin. And so he says you're to resist temptation in those moments. And his comment there is that the temptation is not from God, but God gives every good and perfect gift. So the temptation to sin, though, is the most serious danger to us. It's not the suffering that we go through. 
It's not the wrong that's being done to us, but the wrong that might be done by us that's most dangerous. So we resist temptation. Today, we're going to look at verses 19 through 25 in chapter 1, where James is going to comment on the temptation to run off at the mouth when we're in the midst of trial. So look with me as we hit the gym. James 1, verses 19 through 25. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having a, a become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So James writes in this passage to strengthen those who are facing trials, encouraging them to resist the temptation of anger and of impatience and to put into practice the teachings we discover in the scriptures. So in the reality of trials that come along with living, we are to curb sin and anger in our life by being quick to listen and putting the word of God into practice. So let's first consider what it means to be a quick listener. James begins verse 19 with a tone that connotes real concern. He says, this you know, my beloved brethren. So he's saying, this is something you already know. And it's kind of like, y'all, I know you know this. This isn't new information. We know this. And James is saying here, this you know because you are very dear to me, beloved brethren. I'm urging all of you, put this into practice. Do these things. And he offers three commands there in verse 19, the first of which is be quick to hear. Now the theme of James chapter 1 is one of wisdom. In fact, it reads a lot like the Proverbs. Kurt Richardson, who comments in the New American Commentary, he says, wherever wisdom is the goal, hearing will be a first virtue. Wherever wisdom is the goal, hearing will be a first virtue. Virtue. If you're going to be wise, it's going to begin with listening. So as wise and mature believers in Christ, we should be characterized by, as those who are quick to listen. This doesn't just mean that we listen a lot. It means that we are prompt when it comes to listening. So we find ourselves in trials and tribulations, and we don't just start letting all of our thoughts make it beyond our lips. We end up in conversations with others, perhaps people who are going through struggles or through difficult times, and we stop ourselves from telling them how to fix it or by trying to feel like we have to be the one with all the answers for what they're going through. So we shut our mouths, we open our ears. That's what he says here. So good listening, good listening really is an excellent safeguard against dissension and sin. If you want to prevent yourself from ending, ending up in some sort of strife, then you've got to learn to listen. But how tempted are we to only listen to ourselves? We are so good at beating ourselves up, and we're also so good at puffing ourselves up more than we ever should be. 
We offer ourselves terrible advice, advice we would never give to anybody else, but we think, but in my shoes, you know, this is what I should do. And we listen to our terrible advice. We tune out the wisdom from those who've been down this road before. And we put no stock in their thoughts because they're like, yeah, they can't relate. They don't know what it's like to be like this in the middle of this. And so we say, I, I, I've got to do what I've got to do here. We think we have a corner on the truth and that people need to hear what we think about it. But James says, be quick to hear. One thing that stands out to me is that our God is a God who hears. Isn't that fascinating? You see it all throughout the scriptures. In fact, in one place it says, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He says in one point, through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 65, 24, while they are still speaking, the Lord says, I will hear. God listens. What kind of God listens? Have you ever thought about how listening is really a practice of humility? Because pride is to think you got to figure it out on your own, right? So humility is when we listen to others. So our God humbles himself. And he listens. We choose not to listen to other people because we think we already know everything. But God who does know everything listens. He hears your prayers. He hears your cries. He understands the subtleties of your comments. He's interested in your daily interactions. Isn't that fascinating? God listens. So as people who want to emulate the Lord, we are to be quick to listen. James offers a compliment to his command here. He says, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak. Maybe that comes easily for Southerners here. But this passage becomes James's first attack on a major theme in his epistle. So he's commented on dealing with trials, and then right now he's about to go after something that he sees is a serious problem within the church. He actually expounds upon it on cha in chapter 3. So if you think, I really need extra credit here this week because of what you're going through, turn to chapter 3 and read it for homework, or leave a note for somebody else to do that. But uh, the truth is, we all know how much trouble we can get into because of our mouths. We've all been there. We all have said things that we later regret, sometimes instantaneously regret. David, King David, recognized this temptation when he found himself in trouble. In fact, we studied the Psalms this summer, and one of the fascinating things about the Psalms is that a lot of them are just prayers. David finds himself backed into a corner, and so he cries out to God, God, help me. But, you know, there's something else that he prays pretty often um, there, and it's not just God, help me. It's also helped me not to sin right now because he knew when we have our backs against the wall, there's a strong temptation to sin. An interesting moment where David prays this is in Psalm 141. Verses 3 and 4 say, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to do any evil thing, to practice deeds of wickedness. Isn't that a great prayer? God, you know, keep watch over my mouth right now. Send your angels concerning my tongue because I'm about to say what I'm thinking. And I know that that's not going to turn out well. So God, would you just, you just put yourself right here. We are to take it slow when we speak. If James were writing this letter today, 
I think he would also include comments about social media. Because I think social media has opened the door for more people than ever to think they need to constantly air what they're thinking. To just put it out there so everybody can know. And now we can actually do it without having to actually say the words. We can even do it without really having to even show our face. And before you nod and think, that's right, that's what people do, the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you as well about this problem. Something has happened in our world where now people think they should not only have an opinion about everything, they should have to share it for the whole world to know. And James 3 describes the tongue as a fire. In fact, he says, hell set the tongue on fire. And I would say that when you only say it, it's a whole lot easier to contain it. But when you tweet it out, or you share that post, or you comment, to the whole world, it becomes a wildfire that's very difficult to be undone. And since this whole chapter is about wisdom, I thought I would offer just a little bit of wisdom here regarding what I think is a horrific problem in our world today. And that's the way we interact with one another on social media. Whatever you put out there is never guaranteed to ever go away. And you can never control what happens to it. And you can never control who might see it sometime in the future. So whether it's a picture, it's a comment, it's a post of some sort, do you really want anyone ever to be able to pull that up and see what you said? Additionally, what we think is a joke doesn't come across as a joke online. It always comes across as more serious. So keep that in mind. So James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, maybe slow to tweet is what that might be. And then he says, and slow to anger. So when we go through trials, you know what this is like. It just causes us to do the opposite of what James suggests. When you are going through a difficult situation, what are you apt to do? Be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. That's what happens. All of a sudden you find yourself in the midst of the trial, you are likely going to be tempted to do the opposite of what we know is the wise way to act. Because when you're in a trial or you're in a tribulation, you're dealing with trouble, it could be at work, it could be at home, it could be in your finances, making a decision about a job, trying to decide what to do in the midst of a storm that's coming. In those situations, we're just on edge. It could be when you're watching football. It just puts you on edge, right? And what happens? Those trials stir within us fear, self-pity. We start to feel sorry for ourselves. We get envious of what other people are not having to deal with or what they get to deal with. And then all of a sudden confusion sets in. We don't know what the right thing is to do. This seems so complicated or maybe so specific to my situation. There's no generic wisdom I can apply here. And then all of a sudden anger starts to grow. And that anger results in fighting. It brings about judging. Anger leads to attacking. Now, I have to point out here that anger may not be fully controllable. It's an emotion that is not always sinful. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, it says, In your anger, do not sin. So that means we must be able to be angry and not sin. Maybe that's talking about righteous anger, or perhaps it's controlled anger. Because I think sometimes a situation can make me angry, and then I'm able to control that. But everybody can tell I am frustrated with the situation. So anger may not be fully controllable in the sense of doing away with it because it's an emotion 
but you can keep it in check. And one way we do this is by avoiding hot-headed speech. In fact, I think that James has written these three things to go hand in hand. If you want to keep yourself from anger, then I would say be quick to listen and be slow to speak. Now, we live in a time that is just characterized as angry. It's a horrific thing, but you, you, you can't miss it. Uh, you see it in your politics. Everybody's angry. I mean, they're, they're angry with everybody. Everybody deals with it. Nobody's listening. Everybody's just spouting off. You know, they're saying what somebody else said, and nobody's really hearing what the other person's saying. We see it in online social media posts, as we've said. You see it in daily interactions. You know, driving down the road. I'm not saying there hasn't always been road rage, but it just seems like everything's intense. The way people interact with somebody at the checkout line. The way parents and teachers interact with one another. Parents and students. Students and teachers. It's just an intense time. It really is disheartening. Like many of you, I read this morning about the shooting that happened yesterday in Texas. Of course, my heart is just absolutely broken for the family. And then I think, um, isn't it terrible that I become callous about a public shooting because it's become so regular? But the anger in our world is reaching a tipping point. And I've really been praying about this about what's going to happen. I think maybe it's got to be some sort of hard reset. And I think, said, God, would you just intervene? I know that the lawmakers and law enforcement are trying to come up with solutions, but no matter where you fall on the spectrum of solutions, anger and violence is a heart problem. That's where it begins. It is a sin issue. Oh, that God would bring his peace to rule in our hearts. That's what we need. We need to be able to replace the anger that's there with this sense of gratitude, of contentment, of service. I'm just going to tell you that only Jesus can do that. And so that's what I'm praying for. Maybe you can join me in that prayer. God, would you just grip our hearts, bring your peace to bear. Paul might have told us to do the same thing that James does. But I think he probably would have told us, because we are members of one body, as he wrote to the church, then you know, you're to tame the tongue. Or because you are light at living in darkness, you're to tame the tongue. But James's motive for encouraging us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger is because we are to persevere in trials. If you're facing trials and tribulations, you persevere. Don't give in to this and become slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to anger. He also, the thing that motivates him to say this is because he recognized sin leads to death. That's reason enough for him to give this instruction. In fact, in verse 20 he says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So there you have it. Anger does not lead to righteousness. I know sometimes we forget that. It's embarrassing that we do. But if the goal is Christ-likeness, more anger is not going to get us there. So what's the alternative? He says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, and the idea that he has there is shedding those dirty clothes. After I run, my wife has laid down the law. I am not allowed to put my dirty clothes after running in the hamper. They go directly in the washing machine. You know why? Because they smell. Your bad attitude and that petty desire to speak your mind stinks. And you need to put something else on. Try something different. It's not working. 
for the, uh, for the Christian life. Try on something different. And so what do we do instead? He says, in humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. And so, of course, he's referring here to the word is God's commands or Jesus' instruction. So instead of feeding your mind with those self-centered and hurtful thoughts, receive God's word. Harness your life with God's truth. Anchor your life in the Lord. Once again, it takes humility to do this. Because very often we say, you know what, that, that sounds good for them, but it's not really applicable to me today. That's what we want to do, but in humility, we receive the word. But he offers this interesting comment. He says, the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, I have to comment on this because he is writing to Christians. So is he saying that Christians need to be saved from sin as well? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying that we've messed up here? Because people take James in a different way sometimes. But I have to remind you, the scriptures carry this three-way meaning for this idea, able to save. As Christians, we have been saved through Christ's shed blood. We are being saved as the Holy Spirit works in, in us to form us into the man and the woman of faith that we're to be. And at the same time, we are going to be saved. When we see him, we will be like him. So we are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. And so the word implanted in us will shape us. It will continue to save us is what he's saying here. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning is by simply avoiding sin, we are only treating the symptoms because the true goal should be to receive the word. No one should walk out of here thinking that the Christian life is all about sinning less. Now, I know you would say, well, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were very good at trying to sin less, but they ended up getting it all wrong. So the idea is that we receive the word. We submit our will to his authority, to God's authority that's revealed in his word. I've mentioned before that Rachel and I majored in, we both majored in communication. But that does not make us experts because we can communicate, but you also have to be able to listen, right? And so years ago before we had children, um, we uh, agreed that we were going to meet for dinner. And so it was between Ruby Tuesday or Red Lobster. So she decided where we were going to meet. So I went there. I was at the Ruby Tuesday. I sat down. And I told her where, you know, texted her. I said, well, I'm right here inside the restaurant. And she said, okay, I'm almost there. She pulled up and she called and, and she said, now where's the table? I said, well, just pass the hostess stand. I'll be over here. Okay. She didn't show up. So I texted her, babe, I'm right here. I've got your sweet tea and me sweet tea. Where are you? So she called me. She said, I'm standing in here. I can't see you. I said, Rachel, I'm right behind the hostess stand. I have your tea and my tea and I'm holding the Ruby Tuesday menu. And she said, well, you're supposed to be at Red Lobster. Now, she's not here this morning because her sister, in fact, I just got a message, her sister just had a baby, and so she is there with her, but nobody was there to witness this comment either, but I will just say I went to Red Lobster to join her there. But there is a difference between hearing words that are being said and listening. This morning, are you really listening to the Lord? I think these verses should be convicting for every one of us this morning because each of us struggle struggles with this concept. Verse 18 reminds us, God has given us his word, uh, given us birth through his word. He urges us to put aside filthiness and wickedness, and we are to humbly receive the word implanted in us. Therefore, we have to figure out, what's my worldview here? Do I see the world the same way that the Lord does as revealed in scripture? 
Do we treat sin as if it's a big deal or if it's just a thing? Do we see that sin is destructive? Second thing, we have to repent. The Christian life is characterized as a life of repentance. We recognize sin in our life, we confess it, and we turn and go the other way. The third thing is, is we humbly accept the word of God as true and authoritative in our life. We don't argue, we don't treat it as not a big deal. We are quick to hear and, uh, we, and, it's, and what it says and then apply it. And so quick listeners, and now we're going to look at being a faithful doer. In verse 22 it says, but prove yourself doers of the word and not merely hearers. Uh, who delude themselves. James says it's not enough as believers to only hear what God has to say. We also have to put it into practice. So if you are just treating the word of God as a part of a checklist, well, I heard the sermon this week or I, you know, I read my devotional this week, you've got it wrong. You're deceiving yourself. You're deluding yourself. And we are excellent at deceiving ourselves. So it's not enough to hear only disciples of Christ put it into practice. So what does it look like to be a hearer only. I think it means we go to church, we quote a couple of verses, we kind of nod at the scriptures, but we never stop to ask ourselves, what would Jesus have me do? We never stop to recognize that everything we have is his and we're just stewards. So God, what would you want me to do with it? God, what kind of goals do you want me to have in my life? How do you want me to share with the overflow I have? We don't mature beyond the point of experiencing conviction for sin. We hear the truth of God's word and we say, oh, that's nice, but we do nothing with it. James describes the person as simply giving a nod to the things of God. He's like a man who looks in a mirror, and then when he walks away, he forgets that he had that mess on his face. He didn't do anything about it. And you think that's crazy. Who would do that? Because they're distracted, that's why. There is enough happening in this world to distract you from the things of God. There's a football to distract you. There's interactions with family. There's work. There's the stock market. There's the news. All kinds of things that can distract you so that the word of God takes a back seat in your life. Is there an alternative? Well, James says there is. He describes the one who looks intently into God's perfect law, the law of liberty. Richardson says, apply yourself to the word so you may be able to apply the word to your life. Now he's not describing the person who's a legalist, a person who's a Pharisee who says, well, I didn't do that and I did do that. It's not one who studies the law like a Pharisee or a scribe and is great you know, at uh, you know, abiding by the law. This is the law of liberty that Christ introduces. The law of liberty that gives us freedom from having to do in order to earn forgiveness. We're in relationship with him, even when we fail. But here's the bottom line of it all. What we believe about the scriptures affect how we use it. If we see this simply as a list of demands, then we just end up trying to perform, don't we? We say, well, I have to perform before God. God does not need performance, performers. He's not entertained by your life and whether you're able to do certain things. If we only see it, the scriptures as a list of demands, we miss God's heart. If we're led by a relativistic belief and we say, well, some of it is applicable, but other parts I'm just going to throw out, then we just do what feels right and we forget that God's true, true word is perfect. I propose to you today that we should abandon this relativistic, superstitious, emotional, and theoretical approach to God's word, but we should treat it as practical. Do what it says. 
There are all kinds of uh, uh, facts out there. There's all kinds of information out there that tells you how to be healthier. You know, certain amount of sleep that you need to get. Certain types of food you should stay away from. Some that you should try to add to your diet. A certain amount of exercise. All kinds of things to take care of your life. Now, people respond to it in different ways. Some totally ignore it. Some pick and choose. But if it's true, the only right way to respond to it is to do what it says. If the scriptures are true, then there's only one way to live. Do what it says. Verse 25 says a specific approach to the word will lead to blessing. He says, but one who looks, looks intently at the perfect law. To look intently means we search the scriptures. We don't just, you know, not just superficial time with the scriptures. But we strive to learn principles so we can study it. So we can learn from it. So we can apply truth to our life. Second, he writes, and abides by it. That means to continue in it. So it's a regular habit. It's not just, you know, an occasional moment for us. Third, not having become a forgetful hearer. In other words, we learn it and we start to memorize it. So we add it to our lives so that it comes up in our daily interactions. Finally, he says, uh, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. So I apply the scriptures. I need the truth of God's word in my life. I think about it. I submit myself to it. I formulate what I believe based on it. I make decisions about my future informed by it. When I go through trials, I ask the scriptures how to respond to it. When I have thoughts come in my mind, I say, what would Jesus have me do with this thought? So I live according to the truth of God's word. That's where blessing comes from when it comes to the role of scripture in my life. The bottom line of it all, the mature Christian life for the one who endures will demonstrate evidence of considering trials as joy, knowing they lead to testing, which produces maturity, resisting temptation to sin, and then being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Our Father in God, we thank you for the truth of your word that's applicable for us. It's not just theoretical or good news for everybody else but us. But Father, it's for us. You've given us truth in it. And so I pray that you would help us to live by it. We pray especially for those today that need to hear the message of hope that comes not by trying to perform, to earn a relationship with you, but to respond by faith to your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, perhaps your way to respond is say, yes, I'm going to make that decision as we head into the fall. I'm going to live by the word. I'm going to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Others, it may be that you need to respond to grace. See, we don't have to do to be saved, but God is always listening. So he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's call on him for his forgiveness, for his grace. If God's speaking to your heart today about that, would you respond? Just a second, the choir's going to stand. I'll be down here with the staff. If you have a decision to make, you just come forward and respond. So right now, you stand as our choir sings.